eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bids the, midi, the mighty ocean deep in its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. O Christ, whose voice the waters heard and hushed their raising, raging at thy word, who walked on the foaming deep and calm amidst its rage did sleep. O hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. The words of the hymn that were sung by the British Royal Navy and even sometimes by our armed forces are powerful. Perhaps the first few adventurers looked out at the water's edge and they were filled with wonder and awe, and yet at the same time that, that sense of, of or foreboding. The sea is, is beautiful, but for those with experience, they know full well that the sea is deadly. And it's not just the, the enemies on their floating fortresses out there that are uh, threats to us. It's the water itself. <laughs> it's the elemental forces of, of wind and rain and ice and cold and scorching sun. It's, it's the mysterious, seemingly infinite depths below that call out with their invitation to join them for an oxygenless, life-crushing stay in darkness. That's, that's why this hymn of protection, as friends and neighbors and loved ones and countrymen embarked upon the waters, the heavens would resound with prayers on their behalf. And that's because suffering is real. Suffering is hard. Suffering is not what we would wish on those that we love. Certainly not what we would wish upon ourselves. And yet Peter here writes to people who, if they weren't already, they would likely face a type of suffering. Suffering that they were likely to endure. It, it wasn't because of any crime that they had committed. No, not because of any crime. It wasn't for any offense that they had made other than the offense of trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and living in line with their Creator. And as they lived in light of the fact that, that Jesus is the reigning King on the throne with authority and majesty that surpasses all others, they were to endure the suffering that came with it. We, we read last week in 1 Peter 3.17, it says this, For it is better to suffer for good, Doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And someone says, oh, really? You can't be serious. That's, that's not true, right? It's not better to suffer for what is doing good. Tell me, how is, that, how is that better? And one reason that Peter gave us, and we looked at it last week, is because as you suffer well, you honor Christ as Lord in your hearts as holy so as you suffer with that, that, that fearless kind of hope in him, that, that grounded hope where you know the details of your salvation, that, that meek hope where you trust that God is bigger than all of this stuff you were working and wading through, that, that, that pure hope, the pure hope of a, of a good, clean conscience, the zealous hope 
in God. You put on display God's amazing work, both inside and outside of you. The work that he's doing, transforming you into a person that, that takes after him. Like, like father, like, like son, that you, you take after your, your, your parents. It's right, it's good. And that's the reason we rejoice in, in suffering. It's kind of like that salt-encrusted, sun-scorched sailor who presses on for king and country. God's people, Christians, they, they persevere through suffering for the glory of God and the good of his people. And yet there's another reason, a convincing reason, a compelling reason to suffer well. When you and I suffer for his will, it turns, he turns it into triumph, into triumph. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? It's the kingdom of heaven. The way of victory is made through the sea of peril. And here in verse 18, Peter shows us exactly that. God brings about his glorious plan through the suffering of those who are obedient to him, and most significantly, through Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? And, and you can stand as well as you're making your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. We stand in honor of God's word. We recognize its authority over our lives. 1 Peter chapter 3 and we're beginning in verse 18 today. Actually, let's start at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah where the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen? You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. There are forces of evil. That's pretty undeniable. But there are forces of evil who would do harm to God. <laughs> do God harm, if that's possible. Do harm to God and do harm to the people that God has made in his image. Since Genesis chapter 3, we've known that there was this opposition that was bent on bringing down God's good creation. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so to those who have been made the pinnacle of all creation, this being simply known as the serpent here in verse 1, he does his best to, to pose a question to them. Did he actually say? Serpent muses. And of course, his aim was to instill doubt. <laughs> doubt which led to distrust, which led to disobedience, right? And so it begins. And that, of course, that attempt, that was successful, 
and the horrific consequences ensued. Romans 5.12 tells us, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. Why is it so often we think that sin is going to produce something other than death? (laughs) And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And we know that this death that, that it speaks of is not just physical death here. We know that there's a, there's a spiritual death. There's a more significant death here that has been brought forth as humanity that was designed to have this perfect intimacy with its creator. And there, there was, it was supposed to have perfect fulfillment in that relationship. The wages of sin brought death, Paul writes in Romans 6.23. Then he writes in Romans, Ephesians 4. The sin, it resulted in an alienation from the life that they had in God. Ephesians 2, he says they were dead. Dead in the sense that they were no longer walking with God. Instead of living, instead they went on living in the passions of of their flesh and, and therefore became, it says, children of wrath. Designed to be the apple of God's eye, to have that beautiful, perfect relationship and yet, now children of wrath. You know, you know what it's like to fall out of good standing with someone that you love, someone that you care about. That is not a good thing. Whereas we, we once experienced this, this healthy, this valuable, this fulfilling relationship, and now because of a decision that you made or maybe something you said, they want nothing to do with you. That's, a, that's devastating. Some of us are still living with that. Rifts in our relationship. Is there any hope for these fallen creatures? Is there any way for them to be forgiven and made right with their creator? Back to that beautiful relationship they were designed to have with the the best, the most spectacular, the most loving, the most capable being in all of existence. And if so, how? Well, that brings us to our core truth of the week. The question is, how can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. And in his substitutionary, that substitutionary is very important, substitutionary atoning death on the cross. That is, he comes in as our substitute and takes the death that we should have died. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Whereas wrongs needed to be made right, Jesus stepped in to make that happen. Whereas debts had to be paid, Jesus, he pulls out the pocketbook and he throws down the plastic, that being his life. Whereas the purchase price for sins against a holy God could be nothing less than the spilling of blood and the revocation of life itself, Jesus lays down his own perfect life So that God's plan of love to rescue a wayward, condemned people might be fully realized. Back in the garden, all the way back at the beginning, the opposing forces, they scored a victory, didn't they? Big victory. And from that point on, they would wage this war of terror with the aim of completely desecrating and obliterating the people designed to image their maker. Oh, these people testify uh, about your glory. Watch what we do to them. They thought they had 
backed God into a corner. Oh, yeah, big corner here. God, you have no choice, no choice but to justly and ferociously punish them according to all that your holy nature demands. They thought they had God in a corner, and yet they didn't have on their radar that through suffering and peril, he would carve out the way of victory. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why? Look at Jesus. That's what Peter says. Look at Jesus. He suffered. How much? All the way. He suffered once. Well, why does that matter, someone might ask. Well, it matters because it put an end to that old sacrificial system where they were repeatedly offering animal sacrifices again and again and again. Why these animal sacrifices? God wanted them to know just how serious this sin was. It requires a life. Lives of countless animals were offered to prove that point on any given Passover, as many as a quarter of a million. That's a lot. Not anymore. Jesus was the perfect, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. When Jesus died, the wrath of God was completely satisfied. Hebrews 10, 14 tells us, for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being, sa- those who are being sanctified. How could Jesus pay for the sins of of people other than himself. Don't you have to pay for your, your own sins? Well, that's exactly it. Jesus, unlike everyone else, was perfect and completely without sin. And so he's the hero that had what it took to get the job done. The sacrifice that he made, it didn't have to count for his own sin because he didn't have any sins to begin with. And so it was able to be applied to others. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, if you haven't memorized this, get this one in your head. Because we need to hear this all the time. For our sake, my sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but I look in the mirror and I see not the righteousness of God all the time. And I have to be reminded of who I am in Christ. What did Jesus accomplish through his sufferings? All this he endured so that, Peter says, he might bring us to God, Peter writes. We who made ourselves distant, who made ourselves alienated, brought near to him once again. That that curtain of separation that was rendered from top to bottom when Jesus died on that cross, that, all, that, 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 that paves the way for us to enter into the holy place, to have intimacy with God once again. That's exactly what we're talking about here. But so much more than a physical curtain, a spiritual curtain was rendered here. It's better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will. Really? Yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> Thank God. Though three times Jesus prayed in the garden, if it be your will, take this cup, this cup meaning this cup of suffering, take it away from me. He knew where he was going. Take it away from me. And yet every time 
right after he prays it, he says, not my will, but yours be done. It is better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will. The victory Christ accomplished through his suffering, the fulfilling of God's great plan, it has us leaving, uh, it leaves us asking ourselves, well, then what about me? Because Peter, you're talking about me, right? You were talking about Jesus. Jesus did that, true. I get that. But now you're saying for us, it's better for me to suffer for doing good. So what part of God's great plan is he going to accomplish through me? Exactly. We know that the biggest part is already taken care of. But does God have a purpose in the suffering for good that his people endure now? Have you thought about that? So often we just say, oh, this is such a drag. How can this be? God, are you even real? How could you abandon your people to this? And Peter says, look back to Jesus. If God's will is that you should suffer for doing good, then that suffering is not going to waste. It's part of a magnificent plan that has been unfolding throughout history and will one day be unveiled for all to see how glorious God truly is. Are you all in for the glory of God and the good of his people? <laughs> then you need to remind yourself that the way of victory is made so very often through the sea of peril. This gets better. Hang, hang with me here. Christ paves the way for us to be brought back to God through his death on the cross. Peter writes, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they were formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You say, that's a long time ago. Exactly. That is a long time ago. His body died, but his eternal spirit was made alive. That is just to say that Jesus' body, he actually did have a human body. And when he went to the cross, he actually physically died on that cross. But the Spirit, even though it experienced this, this temporary separation from God, when Jesus cries out, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet his Spirit lives on. And then we read that, that after he died, he went it doesn't say where he went. There are all kinds of thoughts about where this was. My mom was telling me some the other night. <laughs> the Apostles' Creed, it tells us that he descended into hell. Now, that can actually be misleading here. What it's actually referring to here, the, even the Apostle Creed, is not hell proper. Gehenna in the New Testament. It's not referring to that. But it's the place of the dead. It's, you might have heard the word sheol or Hades in the Greek. Scripture doesn't teach us that Jesus went to hell as if he had to spend some time there, do some time in prison, and after the end of three days, well, then you will have accomplished your mission. No, that's not what's going on here. Everything was paid in full at the cross. And so when Jesus died, he didn't go to hell, nor was he hanging out in the empty tomb just waiting for Sunday to come around. Oh, man, this is a long night. I can't wait. no. He was dead, but he actually went somewhere. And while he was out, he makes a proclamation. Now that is another, that leads us to another big question. What did he proclaim? <laughs> and to whom did he proclaim it? Someone might say, well, okay, this is, 
you know, I'm just going to check out. I'm going to check my phone. I'm going to see what the stock market's doing right now. What's, what's for lunch? Is there any good place to go around here? But I'm not going to get sick. Don't do that. This is relevant to us. It is very, very relevant, and it will hopefully encourage your hearts as it has encouraged my heart. Who did he proclaim it to? That's important. The answers to these questions are relevant. They actually add a depth and a richness and and actually a force to Peter's words. Who are these spirits, first of all? The spirits who were in in prison. Some people think they're, they're dead people, but if you look at the way, if you look at the word there, the Greek word for spirits is different than the Greek word for souls here. And so when, the, when in the New Testament, the word spirits is used, almost exclusively it is used to refer to beings other than human beings. The only time it's referred to, it's used to refer to human beings is when it's in conjunction with, with a modifier like spirits of righteousness. Every other time in the New Testament, the word souls is used to refer to people who have passed on. And so we have to think to ourselves, I don't think this is talking, I don't think he's talking about dead people here. And he's talking to some other beings here, other than human beings who are themselves in prison for disobedience that took place all the way back in the time of Noah when that ark was being built. If you were there with us in our study of Genesis, you remember our whole discussion on this in Genesis chapter 6 where it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their, as their wives any they chose. That phrase, sons of God, was very, very important. And we looked at that very carefully. And we looked at all kinds of different passages to help us understand what sons of God could actually mean. And if you recall, what we concluded was that the sons of God are not these superhuman kind of people that are walking around. These are fallen angels who stepped out of the boundaries which God had designed for them, set by God, and they took possession of human beings. Possession, it's a weird idea, and yet we see it throughout the Bible. Jesus deals with it in his ministry. They took possession of human men, and they married human women. Now, is anyone shuffling in their seats here? This is a little weird. I get that. Jude talks about this, the New Testament book of Jude in verse 6. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has, that is God, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So these fallen angels, they leave their proper dwelling, and they go participate in something that was never meant for them to participate in. They go beyond the boundaries that God designed for the natural order, and they seek to have relations with human women. 
And this is why God imprisoned them in eternal darkness. And Jude compares it to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was the sin of homosexuality there. It was the indulging in sexual urges that were outside of God's natural design, which is very clearly stated in Scripture. And that's essentially what these demonic spirits were attempting, outside of God's normal design. Why would they be doing this? They're angels. Come on. Well, it does say that they found the daughters of men to be attractive, as they are. <laughs> but I think there's another reason here. I think it goes back to the, their, their, their MO from the very beginning, their, the MO of their leader, what he was trying, attempting to do here. I think it was to try to entice humanity, these image bearers, away from God further, dangling a carrot, made people think that if they went a few steps further, maybe if we go get a few steps further, we can become like God. Because the first time we went outside of God's design, we got kicked out of the garden. That was not a great thing for us. Things have gotten hard. There are weeds springing up in my garden. I don't like this. We're fighting with each other. It doesn't seem to be working here. How can we fix this? We know it's not God's way. It's got to be our way. And I think that they dangled this carrot in front of them and said, you want to know how to become like God? Well, Step one, you disobeyed. That was great. Here's another step. How about this? How about interacting with the spirit world in a way you never thought of interacting before? You want to tap real power? How about joining yourselves with people that claim to be possessed with super spiritual beings within? Oh, just think of what your offspring are going to be like. You want to really become something? Boy, that temptation's still around today, isn't it? And we're looking all the time for ways to become super people. And we do it through our technology. Oh, that's why these things are so tempting. It's like, oh, just think of the power I would have in my hand if I have this new device or this new vehicle or this new smart home or whatever it is. Or if I understand these new concepts if I, if I tap into that secret wisdom out, we're always looking for new stuff that is going to correct so many of the problems we face as a fallen people. I think that's what's going on here. And at the same time, I think that these demons knew what they were doing. We encourage unnatural relations. Well, we might have a way to put and end this human race altogether, if we could stop them from procreating, it all goes away. As was started in the garden, as Satan possessed the body of this serpent, you can become more like God. Sure, he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be fulfilled in him. You can be more. Did you know you can actually be like him? He's been holding that back from you. It makes sense then the same thing was happening in the days of Noah. These spiritual forces trying to, trying to convince humanity that by joining with them, they could be some sort of, they could, they could put an end to the judgment of God and, and somehow attain some type of immorality. Wouldn't, boy, wouldn't that put a wrench into God's plans now? What a victory, they thought. What a victory. They thought they won. 
Back in the garden, oh, we're going to get God to punish his own pinnacle of creation. Right at the Right as God's threatening judgment, we're going to push them even closer to the edge. God's really going to wipe them out now. If they don't wipe themselves out, God's going to bring the rain, baby, and they're going to be leveled. What a victory. And then it comes. And you can imagine when the earth breaks forth and water comes up from the ground and water comes from above and everything gets wiped out, they're thinking, this is it. Oh, this is so good. And yet then they th found themselves being thrown into the abyss with no hope of release. Jude 6, kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. As Christ was sent to the cross, those demons must have thought the same thing. Well, it didn't work the first time. The second time at the ark, well, we thought we were on a roll. Now we got trapped. But look, all of our brothers here, they're sending God's promised Messiah to the cross. Yes! God's big plan thwarted. But Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might banish us forever from God? No, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And so being dead in the body, he goes in the spirit Jesus makes a proclamation to these imprisoned spirits, and he declares something to these haggard, weary wretches that have been waiting in the pit for their brothers to put an end to God's big plan so that they might actually be released. And what do you think that he declares to them? If you guys just trust in Jesus, you can be... No! There's no hope for them. There's really only one possibility here. It's not the gospel. It's the victory. It's the victory. The proclamation that for all their devious efforts, all of their scheming, there would never be any hope of release for them. In fact, the rest of you clowns, you're going to the same place. Their fate is sealed. Christ, the suffering servant, has triumphed victoriously and gloriously. What a twist! Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it great? Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and he disarmed them. He put them to open shame. We can't gloss over that. They were put to shame at the cross by triumphing over them in him. Do you see how gloriously sweet this victory is? You have to keep your eyes on the victory of the cross of Christ. I was at a camp once where one of the other counselors was like, they're just dealing with surfacey stuff in here. We're, we've got to get out of the starting blocks. They just keep talking about Jesus and the gospel and the cross and all this. And I said, what are you talking about? This is the core of it. Well, we just want to go deep. This is the depth. This is as deep as it, this is deeper than anything else you got. The cross of Christ and the victory that he has won Go back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That was a big deal. There's some great movies. Great movies about that. 
even without their horrible special effects, they're so good. Moses' sister Miriam sang, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. But you know, the victory that God had over Pharaoh is nothing compared to the victory of Jesus Christ. Once and for all, definitively, victory over the forces of evil, over sin, over death, over all these things that we brought on ourselves. Why is it better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will? Peter says, look, just look at Jesus. There's nothing better than the awesome victory of Jesus. You know what he went through. You know what he accomplished. You know the ones that we battle against. They're not flesh and blood. They're principalities and and powers and rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. They've received the message loud and clear. Christian, do you understand that? We live in this world where we turn on the news and we're constantly being told the victory is not yours. Everything is going to hell at a handbasket and your faith is futile. No, Christ has had the victory here. Have you received the message? Because Satan's forces absolutely have received the message. Suffering for doing good is better. God gets his way. (laughs) Even though you may feel like you were in peril on the sea, take courage. In fact, rejoice. (laughs) This is where the victory is born. And God's given us a powerful picture of how he delivers his people in peril. He doesn't always take away our suffering, does he? Some of you right now are going, I, I, I am in it. And it is awful. It doesn't always take away our suffering. Instead, he provides a way for us to be carried through. And that's what he did in the flood. That's what he did at the cross. And take heart, that's what he will do for you now. He will bring you through. Through the waters of the flood, the waters of judgment, which brought about this peril to every creature on the land, God preserved for himself a people. How many? Eight people, Peter says, were brought safely through the water. Though the sea raged, eight people carried safely within the vessel that God himself was the... the, the initiator of, as they step inside the ark, what do they do? They say goodbye. Goodbye to the old world, don't they? Goodbye world, which I loved. And they step out and they say hello to a beautiful new world as they enter into the newness of God's creation. If, if you know Jesus, if you place your trust in Jesus, if, if you've been baptized, better yet, this sounds very familiar to you, doesn't it? Peter writes, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that word baptism here, you know what it means? It means immersion. It means, it means 
fully entering into something. And he's not just talking about when you get baptized, as if it, 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 like in our church, when we go up to the front building up there and we dunk people. He's not, just talk, he's not talking about that. As you go down into the water, your, your old life goes, is, is symbolically enduring the judgment that Jesus Christ endured on your behalf, and you endure that with him. But just like the ark carried people through the flood, as you rise up out of the water, then you rise victoriously in Christ, right? But it's not the water that has saved you. It's not a bath that you need. Dirt is, that's, that's one thing. Your problem is a sin issue here. And that can only be dealt with as you are immersed into Jesus Christ and all that his death and resurrection mean for you. The, the baptism that we do here, that, that's the picture that Jesus commanded us to perpetuate here. Every time someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, you want to be one of the first to say, you know, I'll get baptized, I want to show everybody what Jesus Christ just did inside of me. But it's just a picture of the real thing that the Holy Spirit has accomplished, has applied to you as he immerses you into Jesus Christ. And just as he, just as he passed through the peril of God's judgment and came out on the other side alive and well, so do you. God doesn't pull you out of the suffering, but he'll bring you through for his glory and your good. Christ the Lord is risen today and so, so are you if you are in him. Yes, he suffered just as you may suffer, just as I may suffer, but he is now resurrected. He sits on the throne as the victorious, conquering king. Peter says that in verse 22, that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's important for us to remember those opposing forces, they thought that they had won at the flood. <laughs> they thought that they had won at the cross. <laughs> they might think that they can still somehow foil God's plans as you endure suffering for doing good. Look at these people. Look what we're doing to them now. They're wrong. So wrong. There may be peril on the sea, but do not forget that the victory awaits those who are in Christ. Do you find yourself in peril? John Bunyan's novel, The Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you've read it, maybe you've heard about it. The main character is Christian. He finds himself at the water's edge. It says this, Bunyan writes this, Then they addressed themselves to the water. And entering, Christian began to sink, crying out for his good friend, his good friend named Hopeful. He said, I sink in deep waters. Billows go over my head, and all his waves go over me. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother. I, I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then Christian said, Ah, oh, my friend, the, the sorrows of death have, have compassed about me. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey and, and, with, with a great, and with that great darkness and horror, and with that great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. 
Also, here he in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spake still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and hearty fears that he should die in that river, never obtain entrance into that gate. Here also... As they that stood by perceived, he was in, in much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. He's consumed with the darkness, with the circumstances, and then he's reminded of just how despicable a person he is and all the wrong things that he has done in his past. Have you ever been there? Moments later, Hopeful tells him this. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you. That's good. But are sent to try you. Whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you received of his goodness and live upon him in your distress. Then Bunyan writes, Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in a muse a while, to whom also hopeful added this word, be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian broke out with a loud voice, oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overthrow overflow thee. May we never forget, never forget that through suffering is the path of victory. It may come our way, but someone has gone before us and suffered already on our behalf and the glorious victory has been given to him. Jesus said to us, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace in me, immersed in me, you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Count on it. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You may be persecuted in the days ahead. It's very possible. There are many who are. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way of victory is made through the sea of peril. Let's pray. Father, we are so often weak people, and just like Christian, wading through the river and feeling waves crashing in on us and struggling to catch our breath, seeing the darkness, reminded of who we are without Christ, buying into the lies, Lord, we can so easily fall into despair, and many have. I included, Lord at times, have faced those waters and felt the peril. Father, may we be a people who are continually brought back to the cross of Christ, the suffering that he endured, but the victory, more importantly, that he has won on our behalf. And as we look to him, the righteous, ruling king at the Father's side, to whom all these 
oppressors, all of these forces of evil, these opposers, Lord, have been subjected to his authority. As he said it, the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Lord. May we see our Savior in that position. May we be reminded of who we are in Christ, that if we are in him, we've come out the other side. The victory is ours as well, and he shares with us the glory as well, Lord. May we walk with heads held high and hearts firmly rooted in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Be our strength, Lord, in the days ahead. And Lord, may you allow us, even through suffering that may come, allow us, Lord, to represent you well for your glory and the good of your people. We love you. We thank you. Bless these here who are listening. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.